Hello and welcome back to the Mind Talk podcast with myself, Edwin and Montel. Montel, it's been a while. How are you doing? Hey guys. Did you miss it's me? It's been a while. I missed I missed me. <laughs> <laughs> being on the being on the podcast. Yeah, it's good to be it's good to be back. Lots has happened since yes, I've been back. It has. On, so, a lot has. Um but I'm super excited to be on this one in particular. Yes, that's understandable because this is someone you know quite well. Someone I was actually competing the same time as you. She competed in the 400 meters. She is an Olympian. Yes, got fond memories. Won a bronze medal at the Rio Olympics. And her name is Annika Onora. Annika, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Good, good, good. So I'd like to start off with the same question for all of our guests that we have on. So talk to us about your early journey with sports. Oh, how far back do you want to go? <laughs> right to the beginning, right to the beginning. Back to the beginning. Back into town. <laughs> um, so I started running from probably about 14, maybe-ish. Um, it it kind of happened by accident because I was actually quite a lazy kid. I, I knew I was talented, <laughs> but I didn't know to what extent. And it was it was a case of sports day always going to sports day always winning all the events and being scouted by the local coach and just always saying no and then I think when I got to 14 he, he just he got fed up of asking and he could obviously see how talented I was and I think it was more to do with the fact that I you know I went to all girls school I wasn't I wasn't really that keen on meeting people from outside of school I just wanted to focus on my books because, you know, Nigerian household and, you know, Nigerian parents. Um, And yeah, um, my friends encouraged me. um, The scout um, athletics coach, he encouraged me. And then that was pretty much how it started. I went down the next day and just loved, loved racing, loved competing, loved training. You know, I I, I learned that, I learned very quickly, you don't win races. (laughs) And and even when you do, um, there's a lot of hard work that goes behind them. So I kind of learned that. And then within about a year, maybe two years, I was competing at English schools. And then, um, yeah, probably probably English schools, I always say, is what started my career. As Montel will know, um, we we competed in the... It was Intermediate Girls, wasn't it? Intermediate Girls, 100 metres. Um, I'm not going to say the year because I don't really want to say my age. Um but yes, intermediate girls in Exeter, so I won the 100 metres. And then, yeah, two weeks later, compete for England for the um, British schools championships. And then two weeks after that, get GB call-up. And then that was pretty much the start of my international career. I love that. I love that Annie um, says, <laughs> like that you said... Um... So she's like, I won the intermediate girls. So we know, guys, that I didn't win. <laughs> and if my backside definitely did. I remember that. I remember that's a strong, it's a very strong loss, actually, that I remember. Do you know why? I think it was the first time I ran sub 12. Yeah. I think. Yeah, it was. And I think, ju- and I think just, yeah. And it, but, um, but it's it's amazing that you said that you know that was kind of like the start of your the thing you most remember because I agree I think before then like you said you you very honestly said you you were lazy <laughs> and, that, and I think a lot of athletes were like that just kind of like mm. um but the switch the switch from me having a lazy mindset does it change 
<laughs> Does it change? And when did it change for you? If it did, oh, yeah, it it changed quickly. I think the quicker you get, um, and the more losses you take, you understand whether you actually want this or not. So you can continue to be, you know, just average and just go off. Oh, everyone's telling me I'm the best, or everyone's telling me I'm talented, but that can only take you so far. And I always wanted to work hard. And I, I understood the true, true essence of working hard academically. But I think it was probably once I'd taken up the sport properly and I was training, you know, a few days a week after school um, and just working towards those those events like the English schools, pretty much when it all kicked off and understanding that, you know, th- this could actually be the start of something. And I had no idea what it was. I didn't understand how prestigious the English schools was until I was there. I don't know if you've got, if you remember anything about it, but what's your county again? Are you South? You're Kent, right? You were Kent. Yeah. Yeah. So Kent. Yeah. Kent, yeah, Greater Kent. London, uh, West Mids, all you Southerners, basically. West Mids. Always used to dominate the English schools. So then when I turned up, people were like, well, where's Merseyside? Where's, why do you, why do you talk different? You don't talk like us. You look similar to us, but you don't talk like us. So I was like, oh, do I belong here? Is this what I want to do? Um, But then, yeah, once I won, I was like, oh, okay. It, it definitely um switched things up just a little bit. So, but yeah. I definitely changed my mindset off the back of that, but even previously before that. Was there a, a particular race or a particular moment when the switch happened, when you decided to to dedicate more time and more effort into into athletics? Um, probably between yeah, probably when I once I turned sixteen, so once I'd won English schools, just having that first proper season, um. And then getting to compete internationally. And, you know, I I didn't know what it was like. I didn't know what the stages were or what the process was to go to the Olympics. But it was definitely on my mind, on my radar. Um, I, I just, you know, hadn't didn't have any clue about it. I was, I was just kind of in my own bubble. And then probably that winter, I just started to train harder, get a little bit better. And then it just kind of progressed season after season. Um, because once you start running well other people are also running well so you're not always going to have races like I said where you run where you win or seasons where you're going to be ranked first or top three or even top five so you need to make those various changes in order to maintain that level and that standard um and also figure out if this is what you want to do you know so you learn you learn very quickly (laughs) you learn very quickly yeah, and you you said about um, I, I find athletes, um, especially super talented, super talented athlete kids, there's always someone bigger and badder than you, and then you find out you get there and you're like, say what now? And then you have to do something differently, which you did very quickly. You're like, I'm not, I'm about this. I'm really about this. But what I'm interested to hear, especially coming from like Nigerian background, you mentioned about obviously heads in the book studying. It is obviously paramount. It's notoriously known that African parents do not ramp. And I'm from a Caribbean background, so it is different, but I still had that same, you need to stay in your books because they, they didn't really have yeah. that. But how did you balance that? And you, if you focus in going, actually, I'm going to do track, I'm going to start doing athletics well, but how do you balance that with kind of like this ingrained, embedded, innate 
um, kind of force behind you saying, you know, books, 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 but then tracks completely like, you're a female athlete. What can you even do in this world? How did you oh manage that? Gosh. Me and my dad used to butt heads quite a bit. I think I was quite fortunate. So my older brother, uh, Ephem, he played football. So he, um, like in the 90s, he played for um, some championship teams. And because he was quite successful, he also had a, a strong academic background. Like he went to university and then he went pro. So, um, and it wasn't like no no shade to anyone, but it wasn't sports science. Like sports science just wasn't it. It had to be doctor, law, dentist, engineering, one of them ones. Um, so when it came to me, it was pretty much the same. Like when I was in school, I was studying business studies and then I was thinking, oh, where can I develop it? And then without hesitation, my dad was the one who picked my uni degree for me. I ended up studying economics at Liverpool John Moores, which was which turned out to be great. I didn't know that much about economics, to be honest. I didn't know that I, I, I didn't really have that much of an interest. But because my dad was an accountant, he was like, no, this is what this is this is what you'll be good at. I'm thinking, oh gosh. Because you have to think about it, right? All they know is are, are these positions in high power corporate jobs. Um, not that there's anything wrong with like working class jobs or, you know, um, jobs that are paid less, but that's all they know. And that's all they think about when it comes to their level of success. Like, and all, and also because you've got that race element, that race barrier, working in certain positions of power, people don't always take you serious. So when I look back at how our parents were, like my parents were, they always wanted us to be high achievers. So in order to balance that, I, I was really good. Um, in athletics and my family could definitely see that but I also had to be like really really good with my books and um, so it was just a, a lot of a lot of back and forth but once once I got a smooth transition from you know kind of training full-time or training part-time and then studying and then I also had a job so I was working as well just once you get a routine you just go into it you just you just kind of figure it out um, my uni were very good at helping me balance my schedule. Um, my job that I had at the time, they were good at like just figuring things out and just being like, oh, you can come in for this shift, you can come in for that. But training was always the one where I never missed. I never missed training. Um, so I just, I always made an effort. And my coach was very good as well. He was, he knew how my, how my dad was. He's like, if you need to miss training today to study, then it's fine. But I would always always made sure that training was a priority even if it meant I had to be in the library till 3am 4am in the morning I just find a way to make it happen it says a lot about your mentality because I know and I'm sure Montel knows many talented athletes who ended up giving up the sport because of pressure from their parents and being in an African household where books is a priority and getting an office job is a priority so where, where do you think you found the desire and the drive to keep on going, being under pressure with like um, studying at the same time while you're actually um, trying to train to be an athlete? Do you know, I think it was it was more to do with, you know, I really like my degree, but I didn't I didn't want to go into something like in the corporate world straight away because that was always a thing. And by the time I graduated, the financial crash happened anyway. So I was already full time by then, a year, about a year full time. Um, so it was even hard to get a job after that because you know 
there, there weren't that many jobs available. They had to wait until, you know, you know, business picked up again in, in you know, in certain sectors. So it was, it was definitely difficult, but I don't know, my parents just always, I just always looked at them and just thought, well, my life can't be as bad as it was. And, and, and I'm not saying that in the sense that, um, like, they arrived here on boats, because that wasn't it. They came here on a British Airways flight many, many years ago. But um, in terms of the challenges and the opportunities that they had, they they were nothing compared to what, what I had at the time or what I was going to become or what I could potentially become. Um. Yeah, and I know, you know, sometimes some African parents can be extremely difficult. They really can. But honestly, my parents enjoyed the limelight as well. When they see me on TV, in the newspaper, they'd be like, that's my daughter. Ah, and they call everyone from back home in Nigeria, you know. So, um, and because Liverpool's got a massive Igbo community, so that's my tribe, my um, I'm Igbo. So everyone was always super supportive, so... Honestly, my parents had no choice because the community were just so excited for me to just excel in this career um, that they had no, no choice but to support me. So, so yeah, I loved it. A lot of nurturing, a lot of love and um, a copious amount of support as well. And you talked about the, um, the support network. Seems obviously massive. And we know that, you know, there's no iron team. They say that because even though you're on that start line on your own all the time and, and you started a different start line, you went from one start line that has an f- absolute finish that you can see and then one start line that you start and finish at, which we're going to get onto that, that, that mad transition. Um, but it seems like that support network was massive for you. And also, obviously, at the making of you being able to, to keep doing that. So in terms of you moving forward then from decided you want to do the track, you're doing it you're making teams you said you was full-time right before you know the first kind of games um you being a full-time athlete you know we, we could go all day about being tricky and being hard but for you personally what do you think is one of the trickiest things to navigate you like the lifestyle of an athlete whether it's the training whatever it is for you to navigate but also how did how do you uniquely like overcome that some people might have been like focusing on just that without the work pressures. Some people might be just that training is really difficult. Some people might be that they don't have the support. But what's one of those things that you kind of thought, this is that this is an eye opener for me, but you had to dig deep to try and overcome? Yeah, um, great question. So honestly, throughout my career, I was never full time from start to finish, even when I went pro, so to speak. Um so when I, between 08 and 2012, so after Beijing Olympics, once I moved, once Beijing was done, I moved to London. As soon as I arrived in London, I was working part-time. I was working part-time, I was training full-time. And even when I was on funding, um, it wasn't a, it wasn't a level, B level, so it wasn't enough to support me. I mean, London was expensive back then, never mind now. Um, so I, I always had to work, I always had to keep working. So... My, like in order to survive like you, you know that survival mode kicks in straight away like you've got your career on track that yes you want to pursue but you also have to uh, be realistic about your goals and what you want to achieve but also what's what's the outcome financially um so I definitely think there's a misconception around athletes training full-time being in a position where they can fully dedicate their time to training and those who can't, and I, I just found a balance, one, because 
I made it work, but also I had no choice. So it wasn't one of those where people handed me, you know, we'll support you on this, we'll support you on that. I didn't have enough to support myself during those years. So I always had to find a way to support myself through various jobs, um, just do different contacts and networking and just trying to find, trying to do my best to support myself um, during those those particular key years in order to get to, at least to get to 2012. Um, and then through the next Olympic cycle, once I moved to Loughborough, because the coach I had, I wasn't allowed to work at all. He was like, no, you've got to be dedicated to this. So like the first year was tough because I couldn't work, but I still needed to support myself. So again, I found a way. And then because I had a successful year thereafter, for the next couple of years, right through until maybe the last two years of my career, maybe the last three years, I was uh, funded full time. So like, it's it's a blessing, but it's also how you balance it. There are some athletes who are on full time funding and they just train four or five hours and then they're bored. They don't know what to do with themselves because like their friends, their siblings the people who they know or who they know of they've all got full-time jobs it's one of them where you're done by maybe two o'clock and they're still going in the office or in their job at like five six seven o'clock or some of them might do a late shift and you're just like well what's a late shift so yeah I think I definitely think everyone's everyone's way of balancing becoming a full-time athlete is different mine was definitely different but if you're if you're in a position where you can where you can afford to train full time, whether it's funding, whether it's sponsors, etc., it's like a massive blessing. Um and even when I was on training full time uh, funding full time, I never ever took that for granted because as you know, it's always based on your performance. So one bad year, that's you. You know, you're back to figuring things out, you're back to um potentially having uh, financial issues you don't know you have to figure out how you're going to support yourself all of those things keep running through your mind so so yeah I think I think I I think I found a way to do it which is which is good I just wanted to say, ask one one piece of like not I say key advice the reason I say this is because I think what you've managed to do for your career is something that this generation will find very difficult because everyone wants to be a full-time athlete and they don't understand that you have won every medal right that's there to be up for grabs yeah. right yeah. <laughs> every medal world championship olympic medals right We've got, there's everything there's nothing left to get um there's, I mean, there's always more to get but, <laughs> but there's always you've done everything and done it this way yeah. and managed to do that but this generation will struggle to think oh they just want it a bit more easy like can i do i have to be full-time if you need to right now, someone listening that is an athlete that isn't there at that level, but has potential possibly to be there and has to work or has to do those things, would there be anything key that you'd say to them? This is the one thing you have to do, whether it's mentally or physically, that they have to get around in their head or actually in their environment to do to succeed to be where you've been. What would you say to that individual athlete right now? Um, you you make a very good point in the sense that not everyone not everyone needs to go full time, you know. You, I think you just figure it out as you go. And I'm saying that in the sense that you may, I, I saw it so many times. There were so many athletes who were talented. And because of the group and the environment that they were surrounded by or in, they felt like, oh, if, if they become a Olympian or world championship medalist or Olympic medalist, or if they're winning medals and they're competing with the big leads, 
I need to do exactly the same thing. So I need to go full time. But these are the same people who didn't know how to support themselves and they were left in financial debt. They were left in financial crisis. But you would always see them dedicated to the sport. And I think it happened quite a few times. And, and someone who I was, I was close with, this is years and years and years ago, I just had to tell them, like, you know, I went through this. This is exactly what I went through. And I, listen, I found a way to make it happen. That's not to say that you can, but you have to realise track and field, it's not for everyone. It's, it isn't. Like, you track, it can only take you so far, especially when you've got... um you got, you know, you're surrounded by so many talented people. People seem to think that, oh, if I go full time, this is what's going to happen. And they just keep going and they're, they're still at the same level that they are. And then before you know it, you've missed the boat. But it's hard for people to accept. It actually is really hard for people to accept. And I don't say that to be shady or messy or whatever, because, you know, obviously I, I you know, I was very successful in my career. But I also say that to be, you have to, you have to be realistic. You have to be realistic with your choices. So even when I was good, I was still part-time. I was training training in the evenings. I wasn't training, um, I wasn't training full-time. And even when I transitioned to full-time, that was still weird because when I was doing it in Liverpool in my in the year prior to leave um to uh Beijing Olympics, my coach at the time still had a full-time job. So in, in order for me to train full-time, it wasn't gonna work because he still had a nine to five job. So we were like, yeah, let's just train in the evening. Let's go back to how things were. Or I would do a gym session in the day and then train to the evening. So I think it's like it's key that you just, for those athletes who are in this position, ask others, ask other athletes, ask other ex-athletes. Like I've had people ask me various questions um, about how they manage this. They see me doing this. I'm like, you don't know, you don't know my struggle. I mean, now you do because I've written it in a book. But had I not told my story, you wouldn't have known my struggle. So you see me on the start line, you always see me making teams or you see the level of success, but you don't know what I've gone through or what the next person's gone through. So I think it's about being realistic with what you want to achieve, but also, you know, ask ask questions, you know, make sure you're surrounded by good people and you're well supported. But I think if you, if you just go off the fact that, oh, well, if I train with this person because they're a big time name or big time athlete, the same thing will happen to me. And it's not always the case. I just want to ask one more question around this area. So in terms of training full-time and not training full-time. So when it comes to not um, to training full-time and race day comes and there's pressures on your performance, how do you mentally deal with that, knowing that your performance is going to dictate some of the funding that comes in? How do you not let it affect how you perform oh um i was i wasn't really that good at managing that i think in the early stages of your career because you know if if it felt like i guess you were a commodity uh, and it's just business as opposed to looking at it from a human aspect so this is just someone an athlete who just wants to stand on the start line and perform but unbeknownst to the outside world this one performance can dictate whether you're on funding, whether you get um you retain your shoe contract for the year, and uh, whether you're gonna be able to pay your mortgage or your rents, pay bills, you know, food, all of that stuff. I think in the beginning, if you're in a you know tough financial position, which I was at times, it can be difficult. But then um 
there's also a higher expectation once you're on once you do um get to a certain level so i had an amazing psychologist and he would just always help me find ways to just block all, all of that out because essentially you've done all this work all year for you to stand on the start line to be in the best possible shape that you've ever been in and working towards these goals whether it's winning a pb and um, getting a medal making a final etc in a global champs whatever it may be are you going to really allow that to be thrown away based off the fact that you know the powers that be are going to have a say on whether you're good enough like you know you're good enough that's all that matters so yeah I, I probably tend to focus on that a little bit more and I definitely got better as at it as I got older so um I'm gonna bring up um so I have actually got obviously your lovely book here. Look at this face. Oh my god. You know what? Face. It's so weird. Um right here. <laughs> no, see your face, you're like, this is me. And it's called My Hidden Race. If you guys haven't copped it, you need to go and check this out because um it's a great easy read as well, because I am not the biggest reader. I'm definitely an audible girl. Like, I'll just be plugging stuff in my ears and listening. But it's definitely easy to grasp the real, I would say, emotion. Mm-hmm. the motion in the reality of how like a life journey because it's quite hard to capture that when it's kind of especially an athlete you mentioned about a commodity it's very depersonalized mm-hmm. but you make this very much that's why it's called that my hidden race it's about you and I'm gonna touch on this in a bit because I think it's really important especially towards the end of the chapter um one of the chapters for me is is really poignant but just because you brought up um a psychologist and I've, I've classed myself as a natural psychologist I study psychology as a postgrad I'm naturally geared by the mind however I found sports psychology as an athlete just this weird thing that I didn't even really like and I didn't really even do and the only thing is because just like track like it's just like 400s right the only way you can get good at it is if you do the proper training like you can't get away with shying away from the hard work you have to you have to do it the only catch is to do it and with your psychologist you mentioned that would find ways of you know getting you to be able to do that much better did you think that you know one of the key things was you obviously having your psychologist was that geared around personal stuff like the environment your lifestyle whatever it was or was it specifically to do with your performance or do you think there was obviously a bit of both in there in terms of how you applied your psychology I'd probably say everything, everything. So, um, I, I had, yeah, he, he was amazing. He was, he was amazing for, I had him for over 10 years and he, he was able to just break things down for me and simplify them in ways that I probably hadn't noticed or seen or distinguished before. And, um, um, yeah, it just helped massively just like little things. I remember being, like nervous even the day before you know how like in sports everything even though it shouldn't be but it is it's kind of measured by numbers whether it's time whether it's um you know whatever you're lifting in the weight room whether it's whatever you turn up to train or whatever it is always a number so I I would have like sometimes I'd be so nervous even the day before I would he would help me to find ways to shut off so he would like help me develop like Little, little points like calming points that to help me do that and at the same time um he would be like you know switch off talk to your family so he would also help me to connect with that personal side like like this is your life this is great but also connect with a friend connect with a family have these normal normal literally normal conversations like if like my sister's 
going through a bad spot at work, just chat to her because it's like that's a good distraction because it stops you from thinking about my performance. Um, so yeah, he he was he was really good at helping me balance that out, and then even when I got to the start line, just again finding techniques and ways in which I would just focus on my performance and not have to overthink the outcome, just take it step by step. What are some of the techniques that you would use? Oh, you're asking me to give away my tricks. <laughs> no, I didn't. It, it wasn't anything major. It was, um. oh gosh, what was one of them? What was the one? So the day before a race. So Montel, you'd know this. So when you get to a call room, call room can be, sometimes call rooms can be make or break for a lot of people. I've seen people absolutely be like world number one or going in there as the favorite and then they come out and they're just absolutely broken before they even got to the start line and even though you, you're not focusing on that it's actually it's it's hard to watch because you just think you feel sorry for them because you just think well what technique did you use like who do you have around you to help you get through these you know these moments so he would help me um so in the day the day before once i'd done like my pre-meet warm-up and stuff i would be at the track and I'd find a corner and I would just replicate what would happen in a call room so most of the time I'm just sat there and you know there's loads of people around you but in, in this moment in time there's no one around you so call rooms you're in there for anything between 15 20 25 minutes um and you you practice what you would do so for me I would just just breathe calmly in and out I wouldn't look directly at people neither because I don't see faces. I, I never used to look at the start line as well. So I would either look up or I would look down because if you start making eye contact with people, first of all, people don't know, like, is she being rude or is she playing mind games or someone will crack a smile and I'm like, I'm not smiling at you. Like, I don't, I don't, this is, this is like a really, really good race. Like it's going to be a great race. This isn't time to like smile or crack jokes or whatever. Um, so yeah, I would just try to find little little things like that that helped, and it definitely did because it makes you think the call room isn't as scary. It's only as scary as you as you make it out to be. Um, and sometimes in the four by four was really good. So we would have conversations there, and because that's a little bit more fun in, with the relays, you know, helping the girls out or someone like I I adored being in the call room with Christina Hirigu. She would have me cracking up. One time she nearly locked me in the toilet right before Rio Olympics. Another conversation for another day. That It was purely accidental, but it was so funny because I just, I just started screaming. I was like, someone's locked me in the toilet. But it was, um, she was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So I remember little things like that. So, so yeah, not that that's related to what we're talking about. But there was, yes, so many, so many techniques that I had in order to, um, yeah, just kind of eliminate that stress and anxiety right before the performance. No, I, I love that as well, that you've, you know, you've budded friendships as well along the way, which make all the journey like worthwhile as well, because as a human, do you know what I mean? It's hard to be in an environment. It's like going to work, like you said, and y'all know that when you're in the office, not nope. everyone is your brethren. Like, it's just not going to happen. Like, your work, your work colleagues um, are not going to be your brethren, and yeah. it's fine. That's okay. Um, But you've been able to, we've been able to have just friendships and relationships outside of track with different people and you showing that to have someone like Chris I can imagine in the call room would be absolute jokes when it's so poignant to your performance like it's one of the most the weirdest things you could imagine I guess going out on a stage as a performer singer 
they would fall exactly that kind of the same thing, but it's hard to describe and feel that. But going um forward a tiny bit and and I wanna kind of we can I mean go back if you want it, Ed in a second. Um but I just I found that in going back to your book, um, one of the chapters, which I love the name of it, um, mm-hmm. it's called Healing. And I just love it because it says a lot, right? It says a lot because with with the word it means it means broken, it means hurt, it mean it might mean freedom. There's so much in there that you can be like, what what is that to you? But just and like a little excerpt out of it, when you said that you walked away from professional sport and that you barely gave athletics a backwards glance, how do you still feel that that way now? And how have you navigated retiring from sport? Because especially for someone who has literally done it with the last year, we've spoken numerous yeah. times this year alone. You've helped, even helped me, which people don't know about. But you've even helped me on this journey, and it is a journey. How do you feel now, reading, hearing those words? Does it still resonate with you, Annie, today, or is it actually I'm a, I'm in a different place than um, that? I I definitely I I one thing I miss about the sport is probably the friendships. I miss the sport. Um. But it was time for me to go. It was time. I'd done everything I needed to do. You know, I, I talk in depth about how I was feeling in that moment, in that healing chapter, because that's literally how how it felt. Like, once I knew I was ready to retire, that was it. And just having, like, that big cry, it feels like grief. Because this has been part of my life since the early 2000s. And you think, oh, it can only go on for so long, but you don't know when. And then um, my my old um, training partner, my former training partner, and not fr- and friends and like sister Danielle Danielle Carruthers, a US hurdler, she she was a massive massive big sister that I needed in the sport. She was huge inspiration to me. She gave me all the advice, and you know even when she she retired from the sport, I was devastated for her because I'm just like, who am I going to look up to now? She's like, I'm always going to be here. I'm always going to give you advice. And I remember I was in a house in Atlanta one day and I was asking her, like, when you retired, how did you know that was it? And she's like, oh, you'll know. Don't worry, you'll know. I'm like, but how do you know? She's like, you will know. So once I got to, I remember being at the track that day and standing on the start line and I was just trying to get through this session. And as as the session was about to start, that's when I knew I was done. I just knew like that was it. And if you, and you're trying to hold on for dear life, you're just thinking, Oh, I think the session was like one fifties. And like the person I was, I was in the, doing a session with, they were trying to chat to me and trying to, dist- I was trying to listen to them, but I couldn't focus because really I was just broken inside. I, I was like devastated. It was like losing the one thing that you've had. And when I got home, I just cried. I was just doing that big, ugly cry. And I hated it. But once I'd, once I'd had my moment of grief, that was it. I was like, do you feel better now? Okay, yeah, well, let, let's start figuring things out. And, you know, um, so in terms of whether I miss the sport, I miss I miss, I miss competing. I don't miss the training. Definitely don't miss the training. But I miss competing. But I've got such a love and joy for it now because I'm watching it from the other side. Like, to go to three Olympics and to sit and watch Tokyo 2021 in my house like that brought me joy because one I haven't experienced that in like you know 16 plus years 
But two, I was so happy for all, all my teammates who'd made the team because I know exactly what it's like and seeing the highs and lows and watch them go through various levels of disappointment. Um, I can relate to that. I can relate to that. So, so yeah, in, in that aspect. But also, in terms of transitioning from the sport, did I find it difficult? I think a little bit I, I did, but I also did um, research. So I spoke to Mon- Montel, sorry. I spoke to Danielle. I spoke to Danielle, spoke to her, asked her, what does your life look like now? Um, I spoke to other ex-athletes who've gone on to different careers. Um, wh- what does it look like? And they all pretty much said the same thing. It, you know, it takes around two to three years for you to find stability and, and, and not have to drag yourself to the track because I knew I didn't want to be one of those athletes who, you know, it's like, oh, I can't, I'm too tired. No, I, I can't walk away from this. I need to go back or let me try and go to another Olympics. Like, no, when I was done, I was done. And I actually had fun. You know, I, I missed out on so many things. Like, I know it sounds crazy, but like even things like going to carnival, going to brunch with friends, sleeping in, going to bed late, all of those things I could never really do before. Um, So, yeah, I, I, I really, really did enjoy it. And I, I, I just made sure I just had good guidance and good support from other people in terms of finding out what it was, what it was I wanted to do and kind of figure out, figuring out those next steps, which has led me to to yeah my position in you know a pretty big firm and being able to network and contact and having that nine to five job is is my safety net for now but then also having the book and doing other things as well has just widened my level of opportunity and my network and people you know I'm grateful that people want to reach out to me and they're like yeah we we you know we read your book or we saw you on tv or we saw the article, we didn't know you read a book, then they went out and bought it, and they're just like, yeah, we want to bring you into this, so yeah, it's it's definitely not an easy transition to make, but I just, yeah, I'm just one of those people where I get bored very easily, so I'm always looking for the next thing, Um, and whatever that may be, it might it might be a case where other athletes go into nine-to-five jobs, or they, they figure things out, whatever it is that you want to do, do it with passion, because it is hard to replicate that high from having the best job in the world because it was it, it was it, it brought me a lot of happiness a lot of uh success but it also almost destroyed me at times but you know I would I would do it again in a heartbeat um so yeah I hope that answered your question <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny how you say that's how the moment when you decided it was time to hang it up because I think 90% of the Retired athletes that I've interviewed have said exactly the same thing when they decided to hang up their spikes. It was literally, they were on the track training and they were like, nah, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> Peace out, I'm out. Um, yeah, so one, once you yeah, transitioned, um, yeah. was was there any point when you felt like um, there was ways you wanted to give back to the sport? Yeah, so I remember... Um, well, British Athletics had a role um in the in the sport for uh, a non-executive director role and like a like basic board member role and I was thinking, oh, this might be good. This is a good way of staying in the sport. Um so I applied for the position and I didn't get it. I didn't even get an interview. And then I figured, oh, you know, learning about corporate governance and all of that stuff, I'm like, oh, this is really, really intriguing. 
and then um, I ended up doing a course with the PFA um, last, no, two years ago. So I did a course with them, which was really good just because they, they are really hot on helping current and ex-footballers in these board positions because, you know, whether it's in business, education, sport, let's be honest, everyone looks the same. There's like zero diversity and then they wonder why they have all these inquiries regarding, you know, racist allegations in, in various positions. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I was just like, oh, I want to I wanna know what that's all about. So doing this course allowed me and it opened my eyes to so many things and it's given me so many opportunities as well. Um, so fast forward a year later, I then, um, British Athletics then asked me to reapply for the same position. And I actually got an interview this time. And even though I didn't get the position, I was I was extremely happy with the interview. Like, because, you, you know, you can't just turn up to interviews and just wing it. You actually have to do the work. So when I when I go for positions in board positions, whether I'm a trustee, a governor, or um, I'm going for a, an executive position, you have to learn about the company. You have to understand. You have to go through their financial statements. You have to look at their vision, their mission. Um, look at how many people they've got in the employees. Like, look at, like, literally Google stuff about the company online so you don't get caught out. So when I've sat in various interviews, I'm like, okay, that could have gone better based on X, Y, Z. But I'm like, no, this this was actually really, really good. So that's why I always try to encourage Loads of athletes who, you know, who are on committees now or have a voice, you know, those who have a voice and want to do more either in their sport or in various sports, because these positions, they, they are available. You just need to go out and find them. You've got to network, you've got to ask around, but don't ever think that you don't belong in these places because you think, oh, imposter syndrome, X, Y, Z, like, no, I shelf on the rooftops now, like, I believe I'm I'm good enough to be in this position. Like you wouldn't ask me for an interview if you didn't think I was good enough. And I'm not just talking about British Athletics. I'm talking about other positions that I've applied for as well. So, so yeah, you you've got to believe that you deserve these positions and you de- deserve to be in these spaces. And um, I think I've I've enjoyed it. I've re- really enjoyed just making a change in in various sports. Um, I think there's so much value in what you said about not just the transition. But obviously, just I feel like your your unique unique superpowers of who you are that you brought to the playing field, like who you brought to track and field. I think that's a lot of testament to your success, but also just how you navigated that and and that kind of like knowing you personally, that nonchalant but very serious about like about your your stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? That like I'm just gonna get on with it and and adaptable and super resilient and without saying all those cliche words but the adaptability for me just being able to go you know where we move is like the epitome of who you are like we're just going to keep moving and I think seeing you say that talk about how you've given back how you wanted to still move in these positions post-career is insane because I think a lot of people are going to get that from the podcast in terms of there's life after um, it can sometimes not see like a black, it's a black yeah. hole. Like, it's just like, I, that's mm-hmm. who I am. And even if you, you know, you weren't at the level that you are at, it does, you just identify solely with that purpose, but you've given, I think listeners an opportunity to consider themselves as more than, um, not that that's not enough, but just more than, and also just the taking 
taking hold and responsibility of those things, like putting yourself in those spaces. You've written a book, you're applying for these things, you're in insane roles. And, but also I think the business in terms of British athletics and so and so forth, governing bodies have to take stock of people like yourself to be able to just tap into that, that skill set because teaching athletes now that listen to this that they have a skill set so they don't even know they don't even know that they're there by the way they haven't got a clue that these are the things they possess whereas you're saying right now here you actually do have that you just have to remind yourself but also plan and think where do I want to go how am I going to get there and what skill sets have I already been doing for 15 years can I now bring to the table in this new role or job that I'm going to do in now which I think you're you're doing fabulously no, thanks, Montel. I really appreciate that. It's definitely, definitely hasn't been easy by any means. But yeah, I always, honestly, there's no, you, you can't hide from this. You either find a way once you retire from the sport to figure it out or you, um, or you're left thinking, oh, that should have been me or I missed the boat or, you know, why didn't I do this? You, you can't, you can't change the past. All you can do is change your future. And yeah, I just think, yeah, that, that a lot of it is to do with my mindset. Um, but it's also, yeah, that level of resilience that I had. And to be honest, you're not being judged. The fact that I'm not being judged on my physical attributes anymore makes me extremely happy. <laughs> because I can turn up to a meeting with a client and I'm just like, oh, I can wear this, I can wear that. I don't have to figure out, oh, have I lifted this or have I ran this quick today? Like, I don't... I don't have to do that. Um, I just got to figure out how to apply myself in this position. And I always say there are so many athletes, as you know, who work in these corporate spaces. And these these organizations, they love us because we come from a different world to them. Like that's why I always try to tell these athletes who are now moving in that direction of coming towards the end of, you know, an Olympic cycle and trying to figure things out. And like, even if you don't believe that you're good enough to work in these spaces or in these positions give it a try, give it a go. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. Yes, it's going to be a little bit strange in the beginning, maybe working remotely or going into the office, um, having a new set of friends, having a new schedule, you know, all of that, you know, we all have to go through, but we figure it out. So I remember my first day at the office, I was like Bambi on ice. I was like, oh my gosh, it was like the first day of school, walking into this big, massive building and thinking, do I have the right pass? Do I have the right this? But you know, now I walk in there, I'm like a J, so <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> like, you're like that. What up? <laughs> Hi. Literally, the security, like, Hi, Annie. You're like, Hi. I'm like, How's the kids? How's your wife? They good? All right, cool. I'll see you later. <laughs> Anna Cole, last question. Um, yes. So, in terms of mindset, what are the three most important things you think an athlete needs to be successful? Oof, three? Oh, three, gosh. Three. Um, three. Ooh. Um, to be successful, I think you you have to want this and you have to ask yourself how badly you want it. I went through so many ups and downs and one of the reasons why I didn't give up on myself was because I wanted this badly. I re- I really, really did. So there's there's a need and there's a want and you have to ask yourself, what are you willing to go through and sacrifice in order to get there? Um, the other thing I would say is 
in order to go to where you're going, you don't have to go alone. You can find your support system. Those are the people who helped me so much, whether it was my family, friends, partner, amazing psychologist. I, I honestly struck gold with so many people in my life who were able to walk, you know, the journey with me. Um, and those who who didn't, it was pretty easy for me to just cut off. Like, it, it wasn't that. But because people wanted to go on this journey with me, it made it so much more easier. Um, and also don't, I think probably lastly, because there's like quite a few, don't look towards the, the end goal. Think of it, like, enjoy the journey. Because if you're aiming to make a final, run a PB, win, win an Olympic medal or whatever... What happens if you don't get it? Like, honestly, what does happen if you don't get it? Like, I went to three Olympics and I thought, ooh, maybe I could get it on the first one. Nah, it didn't happen. And then the second one, nah, it didn't happen. On the third one, I was literally running out at that point. I was like, God, me and you were going to beef, right? Okay. So what are we doing here? I'm here in Rio. Like, what what do I have to do to, to get on this podium? Um, But I, I think it was... I think it wasn't so much desperation at that point. It was just having that level of self belief that I think I needed, especially because I put up until that point, I put my body through so much mentally and physically. Um, you know, I contracted malaria ten months prior to the Olympic Games, and I'd gone through such a mad journey to even get to Rio. So I was, you know, I was more than determined to not come away without a medal, and you know, thankfully it worked out. So. Yeah, those are my, you know, little tidbits. I guess the rest of them are in the book in various chapters. Exactly, exactly. For for those who are listening, um, is the book available on Amazon? What other places is it available on? Yeah, it's available in all good bookshops and it is available on Amazon. And... um, Yes, yes, Montel, come on, we yeah, love show it. it a bit more, show it a bit more <laughs> on the screen. <laughs> yes, oh, it? isn't it pretty? <laughs> yeah, you can. Hardback as well, hardback. You see, we never get hardable for you. We went hardback because I want it permanency. Do you see this real stuff, tangible stuff we can touch? Beautiful. <laughs> um. So, yeah, you can buy... Uh, it's been an absolute, honestly, pleasure. Um, as always, talking to you, it's always like, nu- there's not even nuggets. They're like full encrusted gems, mate, when, oh, when you talk. Honestly, it's real. <laughs> it is real. And um, I always, honestly, on a personal note, I'm just being selfish, always learn so much from you and your journey. And every time there's something new that makes me think, oh, yeah, about myself, which I think everyone listening to this is going to have the same revelation, whether it's to do the psychology, whether it's to do with like that persistence that you had, the drive, but also just how, you know, just how to get stuff done. Because that's what I think you do. You just find the way is like the epitome of, of your journey for me um and actually the boldness of your journey is incredible it's hard to be as bold as that without any fear of anything it's really difficult and i appreciate that and i appreciate you sharing your journey with us today on yeah no talks. it's been a pleasure yeah. you've dropped some gems i would say this episode be- i've had quite a few um athletes on and this episode has been a little bit different and that's because of you because of what you've dropped so i'm sure the listeners are gonna absolutely enjoy this episode so thank you again for coming on thank you for thank you so much for having me honestly it's been yeah it's been incredible i i love helping other athletes i love sharing my story 
Um, and yeah, hopefully people have been able to enjoy this episode, learn from my experiences, but also if you're an athlete out there, um, honestly, it's life on the other side isn't that bad. It, it, it does get better. You just have to go out and figure out what it is that you want to do.